The price of everything is at a 30-year high in Canada. Record-setting prices at the pump and on grocery store shelves have us clinging to our cash and eliminating all but the necessities. The Bank of Canada's move with interest rate hikes to cool down the economy, but this is far from a just-in-Canada type thing. So many other dominoes had to fall into place to get us here. Recently, a survey of economists found that a half felt Canada was heading for a recession. The other half did not. Our unpublished vote question asked you, is the Canadian economy heading for a recession? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. Coming up on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll delve deeper into the rocky financial waters to see if the ship can be turned around. Ian Lee's an associate professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University, and he joins us now. And Ian, is the Canadian economy headed for a recession? More likely than not. Um, I know that, um, for example, Wells Fargo yesterday uh, in the U.S. said it's 50-50. Lawrence Summers, the very distinguished economist at Harvard, former Secretary of the Treasury under President Obama, said 50-50. John Manley, former finance minister, said 50-50. I I think it's probably 50-50, but I will not be at all shocked if we overshoot in bringing inflation under control uh, because it's not a scientifically precise algorithm. And uh, I lived through the 70s uh, when inflation went up, 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 up. Interest rates went up, up, up. And they finally uh, brought inflation under control. They killed inflation. They went, they shot to 20% interest rates, but they overshot and they produced the great, the bit deepest uh, recession since the Great Depression. Again, I want to emphasize, it's not something, uh, a formula you can look up in a textbook and say, uh, or on Google and say, aha, if we go to you know you know six point seven percent central bank rate, that will just be the optimal rate between cooling down and going into recession. There's a lot of judgment on the data. Studying there's massive amounts of data in a, such an, a large economy as Canada or even larger the U.S. And so it's very very tricky. And because they are determined to uh, both the Federal Reserve chair and the governor of the Bank Canada made it very clear they're determined to bring inflation back down to the two percent range. I'm guessing they may tend to overshoot and put us into recession uh, in, by uh, not by design, but uh, but inadvertently. Uh, when you talk about overshoot, what, what are you referring to? Well, overshoot just means you put the rates up higher than was needed to cool down. Now, some people listening say, well, how on earth is that possible? Well, the answer is really clear is, is that there's a lag from the time you announce the the uh, interest rate increase till you the time that it has an impact and then the time you get the data of the impact, it can take six months, 12 months, 18 months. In fact, former Governor Polaz is on the record in an interview only about two, three weeks ago, saying that when he was at the bank, which was not that long ago, um, their data showed it took a full 18 months uh, for an interest rate increase to work its way through. He did not say it had zero impact for 18 months. He did not say that. He was very, very careful comment. He said some uh, uh, the interest rate in- announcement impacts immediately. Some works its way through in three months. Some works its way through in six months. So it takes a full 18 months to have the full complete impact. And then you've got a lag on the data. StatsCan doesn't collect the data literally the moment the event that the event happens. There's a lag on GDP of 60 and inflation of 60 to 90 days between the, uh, I mean, right now when we see the inflation data, it's really from three months ago. So 
the decision makers are making decisions in real time today, but they won't have data from the impact of the decision for 6, 12, 18 months. In the meantime, you have to keep functioning. You have to keep deciding. You have to keep making decisions. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it is very conceivable. I mean, I think back to the late 70s, I was mortgage manager at the time. And it was fascinating, you know, inflation went from four to five to six to seven to eight to nine to 10. And they kept putting interest rates up and the inflation kept going up. So some people actually said, see, see, the interest rates are causing inflation, which is preposterous. They hadn't put them enough up enough to bring down the inflation. So they hit 14 and they kept on going. The inflation wasn't declining. So they said, well, we got to keep putting up the interest rate. So they went from 15 to 16 to 17. Inflation wasn't budging. They said, well, you got to keep going, right? And then they, but there was an accumulative effect uh, going on underneath the hood. And then all of a sudden at 20, boom, <laughs> the economy fell in. <laughs> the roof fell in, so to speak. And they had overshot, but they didn't know that as when they were making the decision to go from 15% central bank rate to 16 to 17. I lived through it literally day by day. And we were just hanging on, you know, because of course it affected our lives as bankers hugely. Like banks are enormously affected by interest rates. That's their core product, right? I yeah. mean, savings and loans and mortgages and all that are affected completely by interest rates. So we were hanging on every moment and said, you know, everyone was saying, when is the inflation going to crack? When is, you know, I mean, it was almost like they were saying, cry uncle, cry uncle, you consumers out there, you know, show us evidence that you're going to stop inflating. And then they didn't. So they said, okay, we're just going to sock it to you some more. And they did. They socked it to us all the way to 20. I'm not suggesting we're going to 20, to double digit this time. I'm trying to show the, the, the what's involved. They're trying to change the psychology of the inflation. And the psychology is in the heads of millions and millions of all of us as workers, as wage earners, and as consumers of products. And so the central bank is determined to get it back under control. And they're not going to wait until inflation hits 10 or 12, like they did. Huge miscalculation, massive miscalculation in the late 70s. It was the Pierre Trudeau government. In fact, they were running up huge deficits. They were pouring gasoline on the fire, huge deficits, which was inflating the inflation. And then the central bank belatedly started to react, but it took, because they'd left it so long, you know, it's like an illness you don't treat. And if you don't treat it, the illness gets worse and worse. And then you've got to use even more powerful drugs or more powerful interventionist surgery to deal with the illness. Well, it was analogous to that. They're, they're, they're very cautious of that this time. That's why it's not taking them five years this time. They should have responded a year ago. They made a mistake. They, and they've said so publicly, Powell and uh, Macklem. But they're, now they've realized they made the mistake. Now they're moving much more aggressively. So how, how much of what we're dealing with right now is caused by Canadian financial policy? Or is, is it driven by outside impacts on the global well, it, economy? But it's both, Ed. It's yeah. both. You know, and I see this uh, question all the time from journalists and, uh, and also from politicians. I understand it's legitimate saying, well, wait a minute, it's, it's from outside. Yes, inflation comes from outside because we're an open economy. Open means we bring goods in. We're not a closed economy. North Korea is the perfectly closed economy. They have no relationship with anybody outside of North Korea. It's incredibly poor, too, by the way. Uh, I mean that. There's no movement of capital. There's no movement of goods. There's no movement of people. Okay, we're an open economy. So goods moves across the border 
uh, capital moves across the border, human capital moves across the border. People move to the states and get jobs there. And, um, and, and so my point being that we have both international pressures, uh, inflationary drivers, Russian invasion of illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine, um, and 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 of course the the shutdown of the uh, uh, the the Black Sea ports and the Ukrainian breadbasket and the impact that it has on prices and so forth. But at the end of the day, inflation is when I say it's domestic, I'm not denying that there's these international forces. But the government of any country, let's just talk Canada, cannot control the inflation of Russian consumers or American consumers or French consumers. It can only control what's in its sovereign borders of Canada. And we're the buyers in Canada. And that applies to the central bank and the fiscal policy. So their levers are interest rates. Those interest rates apply to companies and people inside Canada. And so yes, yes, there are outside forces that are very legitimate, but at the end of the day, it impacts on the domestic front, and that's the front that we're measuring domestic inflation, which yes, is a blend of foreign and domestic pressures, but their levers called interest rates are bearing down on all of us inside Canada. Uh, yeah, you uh, took us down uh, memory lane with uh, referring back to the 70s, and, and you know, there's a phrase from the 70s that's been popping up recently, and that's stagflation. Yes. What is it, and is it on the horizon? Um, very quickly, um, and I lived through again. I lived through the stagflation. It was it was really a remarkable period of time. Um, stagflation is where you have no real growth but lots of inflation, and and I don't think we'll see it this time because of one single different critical importance between now and then. Then I'm talking the '70s. Mm. There were millions and millions of me, young boomers. In fact, the way I like to put it to my students today. There were way too many boomers and not enough jobs. So we had very high unemployment. And that was a critical feature of stagflation. Uh, high inflation, low growth, high unemployment. Fast forward to today, we have high inflation for sure. And it is eating up all the real growth, Gro growth meaning after inflation has been subtracted. But the critical difference is that we are looking at massive labor shortages as far as the eye can see. And that's because the birth rate has collapsed. We're down to 1.4, break even is 2.2. And yes, we bring in immigration. We desperately need immigration, but notwithstanding that, the boomers, remember, are still in the work. One third of the boomers approximately are still in the workforce, but they're going out the door by the day, by the week. I mean, by the thousands and thousands and thousands. And secondly, and this is something I know it's very unpopular with, especially with liberals, they don't want to talk about this, is, is that our response to the last couple of recessions, and especially with COVID, has been to be very, very, very generous on income support, which I understand. But what's happened is the, the rules governing income support, which we've had forever, going back to un the Unemployment Insurance Act passed in 1935 by R.B. Bennett, and later repassed successfully by uh, Mackenzie King, has always said, you got to be looking for a job to qualify for unemployment insurance, and you got to accept a job if it's in your area where you live and it's in your area of expertise. We dropped those rules during COVID, and we've watered them down extensively, partly because of this conversation around a guaranteed annual income, guaranteed basic income. And so what's happened is we made it much easier. And I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not this nonsense of blaming the, uh, the, the people on the program is nonsense. We have made it for for 
because of our political values, we have said, you know, we don't want to force people to go and work in jobs they don't want to work in. Well, historically, and when I say historically, when I was in my seven in the in my twenties in the nineteen seventies, it was sink or swim. You know, <laughs> yeah. you didn't have a job. Well, you better go find one because yeah. that was just the way it was. You know, mm -hmm. and um, and so what's happened is now this isn't affecting brain surgeons. Everybody, when I say everybody, lots of people want to become a brain surgeon or a professor because they're very well paid. But at the jobs at the low end. And I don't say that low end in any kind of a condescending way. I'm just talking empirically in terms of the wage, the dollar, minimum wage jobs, restaurants, bars, and, and so forth. Um, the I, I'm talking to business owners all the time. I'm, my brother's a contractor in Thunder Bay. And uh, he says, trying to get uh, uh, reg, general laborers, basic labor. He says, they'll tell you, I, I don't want to. I, I don't have to. And, and so that's exacerbated it. I'm not trying to say that's caused the problem. Again, it's multifaceted. Birth rates collapsed, boomers are exiting, and we have much more generous income support programs in place. And so that is made ensured that we have massive shortages, almost a million jobs unfilled in Canada. And it's not because of COVID, as people say. When COVID is long gone, we're going to have massive shortages as far as the eye can see. Ian, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks, Ed. Ian Lee is an associate professor with Carleton University's Sprott School of Business. Now, there is a speed bump in the road for the Bank of Canada when it comes to using interest rates to cool inflation. Moshe Lander is an economics professor at Concordia University, and he joins us now. And, and Moshe, you say the current spike in inflation is on the supply side. Why can the Bank of Canada only have a limited impact on the supply side? So when you have supply side inflation and you go to increase interest rates, then what that's going to do is naturally take some of the demand out of the economy. So if you imagine taking demand out of the economy, what this is going to do is slowly decrease the level of economic activity. So while it might solve inflation, it's also likely to create a recession. Uh, if this had been the normal sort of inflation, which was coming from, say, demand side pressures, which means that people are overspending and that's what's putting upward pressure on prices, then when you increase interest rates, that not only helps alleviate the inflation, but it also helps alleviate that excess buildup of demand. And so it doesn't generate the uh, economic downturn that we would associate with supply side inflation. How could rising wages have an impact on this? So rising wages are another one of those supply side costs, mm. right? So it's no different than uh, transportation issues, supply chain issues, uh, freak weather events that rub out uh, highways in the BC interior. It's all increasing the cost of doing business. And so uh, on the surface, it sounds like a good idea, especially if workers are struggling to make ends meet. They feel that the appropriate thing is to go in and ask the boss for a higher wage to keep up with inflation. But the fact is that that is also raising the cost of business. And so when the Bank of Canada increases interest rates, it, it's going to generate as a side effect an economic downturn. And the ultimate outcome then is that those wage gains are going to be handed back as a way to get the economy back to running at full capacity. But we have a bit of a fork in the road here. If we, if we have uh, rising wages and you've got a glut of uh, vacant positions People aren't jumping on those minimum job wage, minimum wage jobs. Uh, what's going to be the impact on the employment side when people are, you know, the businesses are dying for for workers, but you know they're going to have to start forking out more money to get people to pay attention. 
So it's a really interesting fork in the road that we're at right now, because at the same time, you're talking about the problem of businesses finding workers, which is definitely true. We're also talking about an unemployment rate that is below where it was before the pandemic. And we're talking about an employment level that's above where it is before the pandemic. So you have this weird sort of conundrum that it seems that more people are working. The most recent job figures, in fact, showed that more full-time jobs were created than at any point in the last three years. And those jobs were mostly replacing part-time jobs. So it, it, it's a weird situation right now, again, that the, the labor market seems to be in one of these churn and burn phases. And I think that's one of the residual effects of the pandemic is a lot of businesses have started rethinking the way that they want to run their businesses. How important is it to, to the Bank of Canada's credibility that it's able to get inflation back to that 2% target? Huge. Uh, they spent 30 years building up that credibility. And as any parent will know, once you lose credibility in the eyes of your children, it's very hard to make it back, right? And so if the Bank of Canada is now uh, shedding some of that credibility by allowing inflation to run too hot, uh, it was maybe acceptable during the height of the various waves and lockdowns where they could say, look, that's not our concern right now. We need this economy on life support and low interest rates help. Uh, if they now say, all right, we're in this post-pandemic sort of world and we can't get inflation under control, uh, Canadians aren't going to buy into their statements when they say, but we will get it under control. And that's exactly the type of thing then that leads to outrageous wage demands, which increases the cost of doing business, which just makes their job all the harder and compromises even more of their credibility. You know, a lot's been made about the amount of money Canadians and, and well, people globally have saved during the pandemic. Is that going to soften the blow? So it's interesting uh, because, again, we have one of these odd sorts of uh, two sets of data that are saying very different things. Uh, on the one hand, it is true that we saved a lot. On the other hand, it's also true that we're very indebted. Uh, and so one of the comments that was made by the governor of the Bank of Canada in the past couple of weeks was this idea that Canadians are overly indebted and that we used our homes as ATMs during the period of low interest rates and basically borrowed as much as we could get away with, right? 80% of the value of our home uh, and use that to binge on all kinds of goods and services. Uh, and, and some things were productive, some things maybe not so much, but there, there is this conundrum there. If you manage to save money during the, uh, the bad times, uh, then you'll be cushioned indeed. But if you use the curb payments and things like that to, uh, to spend recklessly, uh, you could have some really lean times ahead in the coming years. In terms of dealing with a recession, uh, from your perspective, is only raising interest rates the uh, the only thing the Bank of Canada can do to get to where it needs to be? It's their lever. Um, yes. Quantitative easing was one of those phrases that we came to learn over the last 10 years uh, after the U.S. housing market collapsed. Uh, quantitative easing has stopped. And, and that was an unconventional measure once interest rates had fallen as low as they can go. Uh, increasing interest rates, on the other hand, there's no limit to how high you can increase them. And so in this particular case, they can just keep increasing interest rates till they get inflation down to where they want it. And really, that's the policy tool that they're most comfortable with. And it's the policy tool that most Canadians are familiar with. And that's a huge part of credibility as well, that we need to understand what they're doing. If they start using weird things like uh, trying to control the supply of M2 or M2++, uh, unless you're really deep into economics, you have no idea what they're talking about. So you have no idea if they're successful or not. You know, economists, a recent survey of economists found half feel we're going towards a recession. The other half did not. 
what do you feel? Are we heading for a recession? And if so, how bad do you see it getting? So am I the tiebreaker here, Ed, or am I just no, supposed to? No, <laughs> just, just asking your perspective. Sure. So what I would say is that the technical definition of a recession is that we have two consecutive quarters of declining GDP. I don't know if we're going to have that. Um, what I would say is that the more conventional idea of a recession is, are we going to experience an economic slowdown? Will it meet the technical de- textbook definition? I, I don't know. Um, but we are going to, for sure, experience a slowdown. Uh, is it enough to tip it to that? textbook definition, I don't know. But what I would say is that whatever it is that we're going to experience, recession, economic slowdown, uh, I I actually think it's a good thing. And uh, I will probably say that I don't know that most economists would say that exact same thing. Uh, But there will be a small group that that probably understand that, yes, this this is something that we should look forward to. And why is that? So, the pandemic allowed a lot of imbalances to exist. So, uh, you know, there, there were business models that were allowed to fumble on that probably would have failed even without COVID. So uh, retail was already undergoing a massive change prior to the pandemic. Just COVID sped it up. The food and beverage industry was undergoing a major upheaval too. We, we talk about how bad the, the restaurant industry got hit. But if you think just three years ago, the, the presence of things like Uber Eats and DoorDash and stuff like that was, was on the rise. And um, these home cooking uh, kits that you could buy and you could make uh, exotic meals for a minimum amount, that, that was already on the rise as well, right? So what the pandemic did was slow down that evolution of the way that the economy was moving. And, and so uh, these excesses and these imbalances have built up in a way that the recession is going to come and lay bare uh, bad business models. The thing is that while those businesses will fail and there will be people that lose their jobs, and that is a tragedy, I'm not diminishing that. The fact is that those people that lose their jobs and the businesses that fail are going to release a whole bunch of valuable assets into the economy. And there's going to be a business that comes along and says, I can make better use of that, or I know how to employ that in a way better than the business that just failed. And so that's what allows the economy to slowly change direction and move towards whatever a post-pandemic world is going to look like. And that's the thing that creates long-term sustainable growth. But in the absence of a recession and economic downturn or whatever you want to call it, um, those types of imbalances would never be corrected. And I, I guess the, the worst analogy that I could give you, right, is you never look deeply into your life's decisions until you face a crisis. When you continue to fumble along, fumbling along, everything is fine. You don't worry about those problems that you have in your life. You just find a way to paper them over and keep on going. But it, it's when the crisis comes that you say, all right, I need to re-examine myself. And that's what brings us back as stronger people. It's the same thing for the economy. Moshe, I want to thank you for joining us. Anytime. Moshe Lander is an economics professor at Concordia University. Her unpublished.vote question asks you, is the Canadian economy heading for a recession? Yes, no, or unsure. You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank our guest today, Ian Lee at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton and Moshe Lander of Concordia University. And I want to thank you for watching the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.